So you'll have to stay back there, push the start, and then come up. Uh, brethren, we have enough food left over from last night to serve 10 or 12 people. So if, if it's all right with you, if you can stay uh, downstairs, uh, George will be emceeing that, and uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll have that food uh, warmed up towards the end of the, end of the worship hour. Uh, got a, a note here to read from uh, George and Sheila. Dear Thornville family, uh, George and I want to thank you for all of your beautiful cards, food prepared for the funeral luncheon, expressions of sympathy, and many other acts of kindness performed on our behalf at this difficult time. What a blessing it is here, it, it is to have our wonderful church family to count on in times of need. May God's blessings be yours in abundance. With much gratitude, George and Sheila. So uh, that's on the recent uh, death of Gladys. By the way, if you didn't catch it, Gladys did all of these figureheads that you see here. Uh, did, ja uh, did Jack cut them out? Yes. Yeah. Jack cut them out uh, out of plywood or hardboard, and Gladys did all the painting. Modeling after the ones from First Baptist Church in Pontiac. Okay. Some of them were, and some they got like encyclopedias or wherever they could find the pictures. Wherever they could get a picture of the particular country yeah. that they were looking at. Well, it is one of the unique things about our missionary con conference that we have uh, this ability to decorate accordingly. And the flags were done by um, Shirley Spicer. And, uh, meticulously worked on each one of those and uh, very very appreciative of what our people do through the years so at this time we'll begin our worship good morning take a look at your uh, bulletin for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the sovereign Lord <coughs> Repent and live, Ezekiel 18 and 32. Today we continue with the mission conference uh, with Dean. Uh, I think we just talked about the luncheon thing, so we'll skip over that. Uh, pledge cards, if you didn't do it already, uh, either have one in your bulletin or I believe there's some on the front pew. Fill that out, put it in the offering box there, and we'll have a, we'll have a count later on. Um, excellent time in the uh, Sunday school hour with, uh, with again with Dean and uh, got to know the ministry a little bit better. Uh, thank you for that. Tonight, no choir and no uh, evening study. You see number five there, new co-ed Bible study for middle-aged and all wannabes. I have no idea who that includes. That's, that's impossible to figure out. So if you want to go, you can. How's that? So I'm not middle-aged and I don't want to be anything. Um, that's at the Armstrong's home, October 27th, 6 p.m. What day of the week is that? It's a Friday. It's a Friday, okay. Saturday. Saturday. 
No, it's Friday. It's Friday or Saturday. Okay. I'm sorry, I asked. Men's Bible study as usual, Tuesday, 10 a.m. at the McLeods. Prayer meeting, Wednesday at 7. Uh, you see the note there with the Samaritan's Purse. I'm sure uh, there's great need still with all the uh, disaster uh, funds in Puerto Rico. And, uh, they're still talking about it being a year before Puerto Rico is even kind of back on the map. So uh, they, can, they could use the help if you want to give. Um, Acts and Facts and... Free Grace broadcaster uh, on the foyer table, so take advantage of those things. All right, what have I missed during all that? Anything? Yes, sir. Andrea's grandmother. Oh, that's right. A uh, reminder: Andrea's grandmother uh, had some kind of an episode uh, over the night, overnight, and so uh, she's at the hospital now. She's unconscious in the hospital. Andrea's going up there. To and Andrea's on her way. Okay. So. We need to pray for the family and Andrea's grandmother. I'm sorry, her name? Uh, Margaret Garcia. Margaret Garcia. Okay. All right. Uh, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from, um, which book is that? Page 827, which book? Trinity. In the red. 827 in the red. Psalm 115. If you'll stand with me, we'll read together. <clears throat> not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made, the made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord make you increase, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. Let's open our service in prayer. Jim, would you mind opening today for us?
Be seated. I have a little presentation to make this morning for our poster makers. I don't know if everybody's here or not. I'll step down. I'll step. Um, Elizabeth? Is she here? Downstairs? Mercy? Naomi? You may stand by your posters. You want to stand by your poster for a moment? Just for a moment. Hannah, Rachel, Lydia, Connor, not here, Andrew, Kaylin. To give them a little hand. <laughs> From the Trinity Hymnal, number eight. Number eight. The Red Hymnal, number eight. Oh, 
from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verses 21 and following. Stand, please. Reading of God's word. Reading from the ESV. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for then he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of, the Israel, oh, sorry, yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Every one according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> we had a request this morning to sing out of the brown hymnal 493 so that'll be our congregational hymn while we're standing let's go ahead and sing that 493 
Well, this is the final day of our missionary conference, and it's been a pleasure to have Dean and his family with us these last couple days. And uh, we heard about his ministry this morning in the adult class. And I, I got to thinking how uh, blessed we are as a nation. We have the Bible in black and white. We can read it. We know how to read where they memorize the Bible because they don't know how to read. But uh, Dean assured us this morning that there is adept at reading or as, as learning from rote, from memory, probably better than we are when we can sit down and open the book at our leisure. So anyway, we're thankful to have Dean with us this morning and his wife and family, and we pray God's blessing upon you, brother, as you come and share the word of God with us. All right, well, good morning again. Good morning to the rest of you as well. All right, well, I forgot I'm in the States. Uh, Buenos dias. Uh, if you have your Bible, I hope you do open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, last night I made the comment that kind of changing this from a missions conference to a mission conference. Missions normally implies cross-cultural going to places where they don't speak the same language or have the same culture. I realize coming from Pennsylvania to Michigan is somewhat cross-cultural, but not as much as some would think. Michigan to Ohio, now that's a different story. Um, you know, I knew I'd be speaking both last night and this morning, and you know, what to do, especially look, looking at the subject of personal evangelism. And last night, focusing on the idea of the mission, we tried to emphasize the message of the mission. What is the message? And I emphasized four things, God, man, Christ, response. Ah, I should have asked you. Well, we did it in Sunday school, and you did fair, okay? God, man, Christ, response. And you can just use that as an outline, tweak off of it, run with it, and that gives you a message that you can share with virtually anyone in any context, okay? Um, you know, for this morning, I debated a number of different things, you know, practical helps, you know, the importance of asking questions in evangelism. Sometimes we, we want to tell rather than listen. We need to be good listeners in evangelism. We need to meet people where they are. If we want to be very successful in evangelism or better at evangelism, we need to be good listeners. We need to live a life that backs up our evangelism. Some people struggle with evangelism because, honestly, when people look at their lives, they don't see much of the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have much love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in your life, and you try to share the message of God's love in Christ, there's just a disconnect there. If I can mention one other thing that I'm not going to speak on, I'm going to spend more time talking about what I'm not going to talk about. Uh, one other thing that I'm not going to speak on is the importance of the local church in evangelism. Unity in the local church is more evangelistic than we think. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 prays that we would be one so that others would know God. Paul in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the unity of being in Christ as one. The unity of the body of Christ. Where do people most clearly see Christ? The answer should be in the local church. In fact, John makes a statement in 1 John chapter 4 that it sounds cryptic, but this is the way John writes. He says, no man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another. Like, what's he saying? Well, I think what he's saying is if we in the local church have love for one another, people in the world will see God. 
And therefore, I think to be effective in personal evangelism, we need to be promoting a unity, a oneness, not necessarily a uniformity, we don't have to agree on everything, but a unity within the local church, because unity in the local church promotes a picture of Jesus Christ unlike anything else. So that's another place we could have gone today talking about evangelism but what I've chosen to do is look and ask basically the question the motive or the motivation what should be our motivation in the mission or specifically our motivation in evangelism so uh, this could take a while you may as well settle in uh, we didn't say what time dinner would be just kidding could be supper but no just kidding I'm going to read a lengthy portion starting in verse 11 you can follow along as I read. Starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's second, actually, technically Paul's fourth letter to Corinth. I know his fourth letter is called 2 Corinthians because his first letter and his third letter were lost. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter he wrote, and 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter he wrote. It would get confusing to call it 2 and 4 Corinthians. So our 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11, Paul wrote, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, he just talked about st standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, no what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving, <clears throat> but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. In other words, people are accusing him of being beside himself. Well, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that is, all of those who belong to him, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Continue reading through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, as we read it, we recognize it is your word. The God who spoke and all of creation came into existence has also spoken in his word. And that's what we hold in our very laps. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for this portion that we've read. I pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would make your word clear to us and help us, Father. We need your help. We are desperate without you. We pray that you would be our teacher this morning. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. As you can see from the end of this passage, or maybe I read it a little bit quickly and you were not able to see it, but from the end of this passage, Paul is talking about a number of things. But specifically, Paul is talking about evangelism. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciliation is one of those multisyllabic words. I like that word. It's one of those words with many syllables. 
reconciliation. And what does it mean? It means two parties that are at odds with one another being brought together. Okay, if, if you were like me, I was raised by an accounting teacher, so I learned how to reconcile my bank statements at an early age. What does it mean to reconcile a bank statement? Well, the bank says you have so much, and your checkbook says you have a different amount. And what you had to do was you had to reconcile them, bring them into agreement. So the idea of reconciling means two things that are at odds with one another. And what we said last night, God is holy. Man is not holy. In other words, there's a problem. God and man need to be reconciled. And that message of reconciliation we talked about last night, God, man, Christ response. But Paul here is talking about this message of reconciliation, or shall I say, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18, he says, Christ has reconciled us to himself. We use the word salvation. God has saved us in Christ. He has reconciled us to himself. And then he goes on to say, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? If he reconciling himself to us to himself, we call that salvation. What does it mean when he says he has given us the, me the, uh, the message, a uh, ministry of reconciliation? In one word, what would we call that? Give you a hint. It starts with an E, and it ends with evangelism. It's evangelism. That's the ministry of reconciliation, and he has given it to us. Do you see that? God is reconciling the world to himself, and he has entrusted the message to you and to me. He has called us into this ministry. That's what makes us, do you see the term he uses in his passage? He, that's what makes us ambassadors. What's an ambassador? Well, we know from modern language, we know from political, the political realm, an ambassador is someone who serves as a representative, as a resident representative. If the United States government would make me an ambassador to Ecuador, I would move to Ecuador. I'd probably move to Quito or someplace like that, and I would actually become a resident living there. But living there, I would become a representative of the United States government. I would speak on behalf of the government. I would say what the government wants me to say. The government would regularly, the United States government would regularly give me a message, and my job would be to share that message. Do you see, when we evangelize, this is not my main point, but it could be, and maybe it should be. When we evangelize, God is speaking through us. You might just nod your head like, okay. I mean, if I can put it in modern vernacular, how cool is that? You have the opportunity to speak and to know that Creator God is speaking through you when you evangelize, when you share the gospel. Paul is saying that when you share the gospel with other people, this holy God is speaking through you. That adds a new level of excitement about evangelizing. You mean when I talk to somebody else about Jesus Christ, when I talk to somebody else about the gospel, I can take to heart and know that God is speaking through me? That's what Paul says. That in and of itself should be enough motivation for us to get out and share the message with other people. God can speak through me. That is cool. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible opportunity. And many of us allow the privilege and allow the opportunity to go by. Oh, brothers and sisters, evangelism is such a privilege. 
You see, when I mention the word motivation, what should be our motivation for evangelism? Sadly, many times when I hear messages trying to motivate people to evangelize, often the motivation stems from guilt. Try to make people feel guilty. I promise you, I'm not here to do that. You see, if I stood up here and made you feel guilty, how dare you stand in line at the grocery store and not try to evangelize the person standing next to you? How dare you sit on an airplane and not pester, excuse me, I mean evangelize the person sitting next to you? How dare you go to that family gathering and not shove the gospel down people's throat? Now, again, I'm going a little far, but my point is, you know, I could stand up here and lay a guilt trip upon people for not evangelizing, and you know what? It may make a difference for a week or two. You may go out and you may share the gospel with people because you feel guilty because of something I said today. That is not what I'm here to do because, frankly, my hope is that you and I are motivated to share the gospel not for the next week or the next two weeks, but for all of the days that God gives us to live on this planet. So I'm not here to motivate you out of guilt. In fact, I want to allow this passage, the passage that we've read this morning, to provide the motivation. What is our motivation for evangelism? I simply have a two-point outline. I know, I know, in America we're supposed to use three points. I'm sorry, we're doctrines of grace people. I should have a five-point outline, okay? I don't. I only have a two-point outline. And the two points are what should motivate us for evangelism? Number one, the fear of the Lord. And number two, the love of Christ. That's what should motivate us. Number one, the fear of the Lord. And number two, the love of Christ. Look at the passage with me. What does verse 11 say? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Question, are we supposed to fear God? Are we supposed to fear God or are we supposed to love God? Well, those of us in this room who have maybe ever studied logic or debate may call that fancy jargon a false dichotomous question. Basically a question that says, no, no, it, it, it's not an either or. Are we supposed to fear God or are we supposed to love God? The answer is yes. So how can that be? How can we fear God and how can we love God? I thought they were mutually exclusive, fearing God and loving God. No, 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 no. Please, they are not mutually exclusive. I, of all people, understand this. I may have shared this with the youth at youth camp one time. My father, when I was growing up, my father, please understand, my father was a World War II Marine. Served and saw a lot of action on the island of Okinawa. He was a World War II United States Marine. And when he left the Marine Corps, he was a professional boxer for a couple of years. Let me ask you a question. Do you think I feared my father? Yes, with an exclamation point. I feared my father. And yet, you know what? There was no one I loved more than my dad. So did I fear my dad? Or did I love my dad? The answer is yes. So are we to fear God? Or are we to love God? The answer is yes. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Can I ask you a question? Do you realize every person you meet, every person in your family, every person you know one day is going to stand before a holy God? 
Every person you meet, every person you know, every person in your family, every acquaintance one day is going to stand before a holy God. I was going to turn to these passages, but I'm concerned about time, so I'm just going to reference them. If you take notes, why would you do that? But if you take notes, jot them down and look at them later. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31, the author, whoever it was, said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can merely kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, excuse me, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, or to me, possibly the scariest verse in the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, for his, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which strikes down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Listen to the last sentence. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What makes that scary? What's a winepress? Go back 2,000 years. What was a wine press? A wine press was a that sort of thing where they would put the grapes and what would they do? They would crush them. How would they crush them? They would get inside and stomp them. And they would stomp and stomp and stomp as all the juice comes flushing out of the grapes as they're being stomped on. Do you see the picture? The picture in Revelation 19. He, God, will tread the... God is the one stamping on people. He will tread the wine press, press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I think that's the scariest verse in the Bible. That's what awaits people when they meet their creator. People who are fallen, people who are sinful, people who don't have a savior. That's what awaits them. That's why we set aside comfort. That's why we give to missions. That's why we make difficult choices. That's why we pray for opportunities. And yes, that's why we sometimes start awkward conversations. Because we want to persuade others because of the fear of the Lord. We want to persuade people. Paul said in Acts chapter 14 in Corinth, it says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts chapter 19, when in Ephesus, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We want to persuade people. Why? Because we know what awaits them if they do not turn away. The fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God awaits, and therefore we plead with people, we urge people, we beg people, Old King James, we beseech people to turn away because that's what awaits. People created in his image who have turned and rebelled against him are headed to hell. And let me say this, if you have one ounce of pity, if you have one ounce of compassion in your being, it should drive you to tell them, just like someone told you one day. Or I would, I would, be, I would be surprised for many of you, someone told you and told you and told you and told you and told you again until finally you reached out and you embraced the Savior. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, 
We want to see a holy God call people out of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of his dear son. So one motivation we have to have is a love, a compassion, a pity, and a concern for people in their fallen state. People who were just like you, people who were just like me, apart from God's grace intervening into their lives. So we persuade them because of the fear of the Lord. Second, the fear of the Lord is one motivation, but I said the other motivation that comes from this passage is a love for Christ. Our love for Christ motivates us to evangelize, or maybe I should say better, Christ's love for us motivates us to evangelize. Look with me at the text. It says there, where is it? Verse, let me find it. Um, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Some of you probably grew, cut your teeth on the King James. The love of Christ, what's the word? Constrains us. The idea there is the idea of being pressed, to being pressed in a certain direction that you just can't help but go in that direction because something's pushing you that way. And Paul is saying it's the love of Christ that pushes us. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ constrains us. Now, let me be honest. Paul's wording here can be a little ambiguous. When it says the love of Christ controls us, that can be taken one of two ways. It can be taken either as a subject or an object. And what that means in plain English is it's either the love of Christ might be Christ's love for us. That's what constrains us. Or the love of Christ could be our love for Christ. That's what constrains us. And which one is it? Grammatically, it can go either way. I think it's pretty clear from this passage we're referring to the first one. It's Christ's love for us that constrains us. In this passage, he goes on to talk about Christ died for us. Christ was raised for us. The focus is on what Christ has done for us. And you know something? I'm glad. I'm glad what is to control us is Christ's love for us. Because if it were my love for Christ, I don't know about you, my love for Christ is fickle. What did the choir just sing? For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. I don't know about you, but sadly, that's my state. Oftentimes, my love for Christ grows cold. It wearies. It wanes. That's the problem. If, if, if this were based on my love for Christ, I would be in trouble. But I think what Paul is saying here is a, a, a love that does not wane, a love that is not fickle, and that is Christ's love for us is what controls us. And let me say this. Yes, I am talking about the love of Christ. Yes, I am talking about the love of God. And I think one of the problems we have in conservative churches, and I know this is a conservative church. I come from a conservative church. One of the problems we often have is we often have operate under what I call a hermeneutic of fear. And here's what I mean by that. We see error in a certain direction, and we want to run from that error, but how far do we often run? So far in the opposite direction. I could give examples, but I'm just going to stay right here. Some of us in conservative circles are very hesitant to talk about the love of God. Because... That's been mistaught and mistreated by so many. They're the liberals. They talk about God's love. And, and so what do we do? We run the other direction and we never talk about it. Paul is saying here the love of God, the love of Christ is what constrains us. Let me say something that may be offensive, but it's true. That gets people's attention, saying you're going to offend them. 
Let me say something that's probably offensive, but it's true. Without Christ, do you realize you are an offense to God? Okay, I'll change my pronoun. Without Christ, I am an offense to God. Without Christ, if I can put it in modern vernacular, you got nothing. Oh, no, excuse me. Without Christ, you do have something. It's called sin. The only thing you have to offer to God is your sin, and that puts you in big trouble. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, when God, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you a question. Please follow along. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean that Christ died for you? Don't give me a Sunday school answer, but think, what does it mean that Christ died? died for you. Tell you what, let's go back to the three verses I just referenced a few minutes ago. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What does it mean that Christ died for you? Answer, it means Christ fell into the hands of the living God for you. Matthew chapter 10, rather fear him, him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. What does it mean that Christ died for you? It means Christ bore your hell so that you would not have to. Christ bore my hell so that I would not have to. Revelation 19:15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What does it mean that Christ died for you? It means that he bore the fury of the wrath. Get that picture of stepping in there and stomping on those grapes, stomping on people as the grape juice, as the blood squirts out. And that is the wrath of God that fell upon our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it for you. That is the love of Christ that should control us. That is the love of Christ that should constrain us. Here's a question. What changed Paul from a persecutor to a proclaimer, if you like alliteration? What changed Paul from a persecutor to a proclaimer? Instead of persecuting Christ, he proclaimed Christ. What changed him? Answer, the love of Christ. He understood Christ's love for him. And when he understood Christ's love for him, let me say this, evangelism for Paul was not a duty. It was not an I have to. It was not an I got to. For Paul, evangelism was a privilege because the love of Christ, which he came to understand, motivated him. Question. So why don't we evangelize more? Why don't we? Well, if you ask most people why they don't evangelize, the most common answers, I've jotted them down because I've done some research, the most common answers why people do not share their faith, the most common answers are afraid of questions that they can't answer. There's an answer. Do you know what the answer is? I don't know, but I'll find out. Nothing wrong with that answer. Somebody asks you a question you can't answer, say, I don't know. In fact, you know what? That's a great answer because so many people today think Christians are arrogant people who think they have answers for everything. And when you respond by saying, you know, I don't know, that's actually a good question. Let me look in and find that answer for you. They don't know what to say. Because their expectation is you're going to have an answer for everything. And when you, when you humbly say, I don't know, it's a good question. I've never considered that. Let me see what I can find out for you. It takes them back. And they realize, wow, you're not, you don't think you know everything. 
But one of the primary reasons why people do not evangelize today is because they say, I don't know enough. I, I'm afraid. By the way, that's a reason why you need to be faithful in church attendance. Not because it's some legalistic rule and we have a bunch of check marks and we're checking off attendance, but do you realize every time Pastor Fred or someone gets up here in the pulpit, he is equipping you to be able to evangelize? My biggest problem is I don't know enough. Well, come and listen and learn and learn more so you can share better. Another reason why people don't evangelize is because people say, well, it'll just feel awkward. I understand. I understand that. Another reason why people don't evangelize is because they're, they're, people are afraid of what people may think. People may not like me. People, I may lose a friend. I may, I may lose a relationship with someone. And I understand that. And, and those are legitimate under, er, concerns. Don't get me wrong. Afraid of questions we can't answer. Afraid it will feel awkward. Afraid of what may, people may think of us. But you know what the number one reason is why people do not evangelize? We don't love God enough. We don't love God enough. We love him so little. And let me say this. I don't think we grasp his love for us. Studying the prayers of the Apostle Paul, there's a prayer of his in Ephesians chapter 3 that just boggles my mind. But here's basically the gist of what Paul says. You can read it later. It's toward the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians where Paul prays that God would strengthen. Listen to this, please. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, for the Ephesian believers. Paul prays that God would strengthen them so that they would be able to understand the length and the height and the width and the, width and the depth of God's love for them. It's like he's saying, you are not capable of understanding how much God loves you, so I'm praying that God gives you the strength to be able to better understand God's love. God's love for you is so great that you need his help to understand it. Why don't we love God enough? Because we don't know about his love for us enough. What do we say? The Bible says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And if we don't understand the depth of his love for us, we're never going to love him enough. Do you know there's a passage in Zephaniah chapter 3 that says God sings over his children? You ever think about that? If you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus Christ, God sings over you. It's an amazing thought. We've had three children. I, when they were little, and they didn't know enough to know what bad singing was, when they were little, I would sing over my children. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Every night, burn in bed, I would sing. Why? Those of your parents, you know this. Why? Why would you sing over your children? Yes, Because you love them. I love them so much. I would sing over them. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 says, Brothers, sisters, if you belong to Christ, God sings over you. Is that your picture of God? This holy God, and he is holy. This just God, and he is just. But this holy and just God loves you so much, he sings over you. 
He said, Dean, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I'm missing the connection. I don't see the connection between what you're saying about understanding how much God loves me and, and evangelism. I don't see the connection, and, and actually the connection was made for me by a pastor who used to pastor, his name is Kevin DeYoung, used to pass over, pastor over in East Lansing. Oh, I'm sorry, Wolverine fans, I just said East Lansing. That is not a good thing to say right now, sorry. Well, anyway, he used to pastor over in East Lansing, and he made this statement. Listen to this, please. He said, we are all natural evangelists for the things we love. We are all natural evangelists for the things we love. Do you hear what he's saying? If you love something enough, you have no problem talking to other people about it. When our first child was born, when Glenn was born, January 30, 1992, 2.19 a.m. 2.19 a.m. 2.19 a.m. In the next hour and a half, you know how many people I called? Saying, Dean, it was the middle of the night. I didn't care. <laughs> we had a son, and I wanted to tell people. I called my brother, woke him up. I called my pastor, woke him up. Called one of my best friends, and he still was my friend afterwards, and I woke him up. I didn't care because I had news, and it was good news, and I wanted you see, I was a natural evangelist for something I loved. I wanted them to know we had a son. I didn't care it was the middle of the night. We are all natural evangelists for things we love. When our team wins, we love to tell other people. We're natural evangelists for our favorite political candidate or our favorite party or when your child does this or you go to a restaurant that's really good or where you see a movie. Do you know how many people now own the movie called Beyond Gates of Splendor because I've told them about it? I think it's such a great movie. So I tell people, and I tell people, and I tell people, and I tell people because we are all natural evangelists for the things we love. So why do we not evangelize more? Maybe it's because our love is cold. Maybe it's because we don't love enough. Say, are you telling me, are you telling me that if I loved enough, if I loved God enough, if I loved the evangel, if I loved the gospel, if I loved the good news enough, that would be enough to motivate me to evangelize and not worry so much about what people think of me? And I'm saying that is exactly my point. We may or may not be back to 2 Corinthians 5. I doubt time will allow, but please go with me to Luke chapter 7. I want to give an illustration. Luke chapter 7. It's a familiar story to many but I want us to see the story once again. It is, a, it is an illustration of the point I'm trying to make. Deals more with the subject of worship than with the subject of evangelism, yet the point is clear. I'm going to start reading in verse 36. Again, a lengthier passage. I apologize for that, but starting in verse 36, Luke chapter 7. Dr. Luke writes, one of the Pharisees asked him, the antecedent of him being Jesus, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, the antecedent of the second him being the Pharisee. <laughs> the he's and the him's get a little bit confusing in some of these passages, okay? But I think context makes it clear. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, remember, they would recline at table, 
table would be here. They would kind of recline near the table, and their feet, which often were less than the cleanest, were like away from the table. So there he is reclining at table. Table's here. He's here. Feet are in the opposite direction. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the anointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And you're, you know, if you don't even know the story, you realize, uh-oh, <laughs> This is not going to end up good for him, okay? It's not going to end up too well for Simon. Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. A certain man, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. They couldn't pay. He canceled the debts of both. Which of the two will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, You've judged rightly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I simply want to focus in on one verse. Look with me at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Actually, to make the point further, I'm surprised Jesus didn't say, he who has been forgiven nothing at all loves not at all. You see, I believe this woman is a perfect example for us. You see, this woman is a woman who could say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole would be nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, she could say that. And because she could say that, it drove her. It drove her in this case to worship. But my point is, it drove her to the point where she was so overwhelmed in her love for Jesus, not that she was spurring up this love, but because she was aware of his love for her. And the natural response when she became so aware of his great love for her was simply, I don't care what other people think. That's what prevents most people from sharing the gospel. We don't care what other, or we care what other people think. But if we would be so overwhelmed with the love that God has for us. You see, she was aware of her sin. Are you? Are you aware of what God has saved you from? I don't know when it is some of you came to faith. I was in my teens. And I grew up in a very conservative home. We weren't allowed to sin outwardly. In my home, my home, we couldn't sneak off to the parties because my parents just wouldn't allow that. Oh, so you didn't really have all those outward sins. No, I have a boring testimony, and I praise God for that. 
God saved me from my smug self-righteousness that even as a teenager I had. That's just as ugly as any other sin. You see, God saved me from great sins. You see, I cannot look at this woman and say, well, at least I wasn't a terrible sinner like her. You see, if you have that attitude, if you look at her and say, well, at least I'm not as bad of a sinner as her, you are going to struggle in all of your Christian life, not just evangelism. One of our biggest problems is we see other people's sins as worse than our own. A number of years ago, I was at a Ligonier conference in Florida. And there was a Q&A at the time, and it was uh, Sinclair Ferguson, R.C. Sproul, and C.J. Mahaney. If you don't know who these people are, just pretend to nod your head off. Okay? But Sinclair Ferguson, R.C. Sproul, and C.J. Mahaney. And Mahaney sat in the middle. If you don't know anything about this guy, he's a bit of a comedian. I mean, he's... He's as well-read as anybody. I think he only has a high school diploma, and he's probably read more books than everybody in this room put together. Um, anyway, he's, he's pretty amazing. But he sat there, and every question, Mahaney sat in the middle and went, him, him, him. And finally somebody said, when are you going to answer, answer a question? He said, why should I answer a question? I want to hear what these guys have to say. Who cares what I have to say? But a question came up. And the question, you're all read off two by five cards. The question was read. The person said, don't know who it was from the audience. It was anonymous. The person said, I have so much trouble sharing the gospel with homosexuals. I find their lifestyle so repulsive, so disgusting, that I don't even want to share the gospel with them. Can you help? Mahaney grabbed the microphone. And I'm watching this. Like, oh, everybody was a little taken back. He grabbed the microphone. And I can quote verbatim. You can find it online. I'm guaranteeing you I'm getting this correct. When he said, unless and until... You see yourself as the worst sinner whom you know. You will always have that problem. I want those words to sink in. They were life-changing to me. Unless and until you see yourself as the worst sinner whom you know. And he went on to say, you know, I can look at someone else and I can see their, their homosexual lifestyle or I can see their adulterous lifestyle or I, I, I can see the drug addictions and, 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 and I can see all these things outwardly. But I can see my own heart. And I know my heart. I know my thought life. How many of you would like your thoughts projected on that screen for an hour? And what he was saying is, yeah, you have trouble evangelizing, you have trouble sharing the gospel with that person because you think you're better than that person. And that's the problem. You see, this woman realized she was no better than anybody else. She saw herself as a great sinner and she saw Christ as a great Savior. And when you see yourself as a great sinner and Christ as a great Savior, it's a game changer. It changes everything. If you don't like an illustration from C.J. Mahaney, I know many of you in here like the Puritans, John Owen said, he who has slight thoughts of sin never has great thoughts of God. So if you're struggling with your love for God and you're saying, I don't love him enough to share the gospel faithfully, consider your sin and consider the cross where Christ bore the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. And then he continued to be gracious to you. He kept giving you air for your lungs, 
food to eat. He kept sustaining you. And he kept sending you messenger after messenger after messenger, sharing the gospel message until one day he turned the lights on and you saw his glory in the face of his son and you fled to Christ who alone could save you from your sins. And when you begin to see that anew and you begin to see that in a sense almost for the first time, your love and your passion for him overwhelms your concern of what other people think of you and your concern about being asked a question that you can't answer or your concern about getting into a conversation that may be a bit awkward. And your love for him and your pity and your compassion and your concern for people drive you to want to share this message. See, we can talk about practical helps all day long, and many of them are helpful. Don't get me wrong, many of them are helpful. But until we understand what it is that God uses to motivate us to share the gospel with others, and it is the fear of the Lord and the love for Christ, the love of Christ which motivates us, we're always going to struggle. She saw herself as a terrible sinner. And her response was overwhelming love for the Savior. She threw herself at his feet. She did whatever she could do to demonstrate her love and her affection for the Savior. She didn't care what others think. You see, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven much worships much. And the one who is forgiven much evangelizes much. Because it's good news. And the good news cannot be kept to yourself. It must be shared to honor him and to love people who were created in his image. Brothers and sisters, consider the fear of the Lord. Consider the love of Christ and let that drive you to worship and to share the message of the gospel with others. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're amazed at the great love with which you loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were your enemies, you reconciled us to yourself. Lord, we were on our way to hell and perfectly content on that road. But just like you did with this woman, you arrested us. You said, I will not let you perish. I want you for my own. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see anew your love for us. Help us never to grow weary. Help us never grow accustomed to, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Lord, there's a reason why that's such a well-known verse. You loved so much that you gave your son. I cannot fathom that type of love. Lord, sometimes it's a shame that we've grown up because maybe we need to keep going back to Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. May those words always be on our lips and in our minds. And we thank you for your love in Christ and we pray for his sake. Thank you, Dean.
For our closing hymn, it's 470 in the Trinity, the red hymnal, 470. Let's stand as we sing. something you give above your tithe this is uh, something you give out of your love for Christ love for the gospel and we're not asking for you to put your name on that blue slip or anything it's anonymous but we do add it all up and that becomes our mission budget for the year 
so remember to do that. So fill out your slips, put them in the box, and we'll go from there. Let's pray together in thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge today. Do we love you enough? Do we fear God enough? I pray that you'll bless us with these two truths. And help us, Lord, to understand it is a privilege to fear God because most men and women shake their fist in the face of God. They defy you to do anything. There is no fear of God, the scripture says, among the pagans and the unbelieving. So to fear you, to even have that sense of who you are, is a gift from you. And love, well, people love themselves. It's always me, myself, my, my, mine. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see beyond our selfishness, beyond our own lives, to the lives of others. Yes, our family members, but also our neighbors and friends, co-workers. Our country needs to hear the gospel. We pray that you will do that for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.